You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Robertson, and uh, actually, I, it's funny that I can't remember his name because actually I've known Graham for quite a number of years, uh, and uh, Graham uh, on a first name basis. On a first name basis, that's right. I can't remember his last name. So Graham, uh, he's a professor of uh, political science at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and uh, he uh, his first book. Uh, came out in what 2011. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's called um, Politics of Protest, Managing Dissent in Post-Communist Russia. Post-Communist Russia, and it's a it's a great study of protest. So Graham really was like the go-to guy on uh, protest activity in Russia before that became you know I mean he was prescient. You know his book came out in the year in which we had uh, you know the explosion of uh, protests in favor of uh, fair elections after the. December 2011 June election, and I think I think you and I, Graham, were actually at some of those protests uh, together. Um, and so Graham spent his time back in the day running around uh, with dissenters and protesters and oppositionists, trying to track them down. And uh, he wrote sort of the Bible on that particular topic. Um, and since then, he shifted gears, and maybe that's a sign of the time. So um, I'll say a minute because his theme of his talk today is somewhat different than that, although clearly related. In the meantime, Graham has also been busy publishing articles in the top journals of political science, uh, American Political Science Review, uh, American Journal of Political Science, uh, Journal of Politics, and he's a comparative expert in comparative politics in general. Uh, Russia. He's also written a book, co-authored a book on Ukraine, uh, the, the uh, developments in Ukraine, and, and most recently he's co-authored a book with Sam Green, um, with, about which he will speak today. I don't know, you have a different title, so I thought you were just... So then the book is called Putin versus the People. People. And uh, and so this is going to be related to that research, I take it. So uh, it's a great pleasure, and please give him a a good warm welcome on this snowy Halloween day. Thank you. Thank you for the the really kind introduction. It's really nice to be here. Uh, This is a... This this Kuka is a place that's that's kind of you know has a huge reputation in the field and so it's on the bucket list of everyone uh, in the discipline and so it's really fun for me to, to, to be here and, and be able to share some of my work uh, with this with this community. Um, uh, the uh, what I'm going to talk about today is sort of in the book Putin versus the people is is I'll, I'll, I'll get back to it in the end but it's essentially it's a non technical version of this with, with, with a lot more anecdotes and a lot more stories uh, and hopefully a lot more fun uh, than, than the, the, the sort of more political science version uh, of the story um, that I'm going to tell today. So in other words, there's going to be more data today than there is in the book, but um, if, you, if you're interested in anything you hear today, and even if you're not, uh, it's, uh, I, I recommend uh, you, you take a look at the book. All of this work, I should say before I start, is co-authored with Sam Green, um, who many of you will know, who is at King's College. Uh, in London. Um, we started this project back just after Ted and I were in Moscow in 2011 uh, doing surveys around the, the elections, the parliamentary elections and then the presidential elections of 2012 
And Sam and I started working together uh, on surveys just, just after that um, and building off that, 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 that research. Um, what we're going to talk about today specifically is um, uh, it's really a, it's sort of a broader puzzle in, in comparative politics, um, which is the puzzle of, of popular authoritarians. Um, not long ago, uh, we used to talk, walk around uh, talking about democratization and how democratization happens. Uh, and I've noticed that my syllabus for the grad class that I teach, it's still in the, in the, on the books as democratization, is now mostly about authoritarianism uh, and the rise of authoritarianism and not, not really about democratization anymore. Um, and what we find in the world today is the pr proliferation, really, of popular authoritarian governments, of governments that rule not despite uh, the people that rule not primarily through fear, although uh, there are certainly plenty of uh, people who have plenty to be afraid of uh, in those regimes, that we, but, but who also enjoy real enthusiasm from, from the masses. Um, this is Nicolas Maduro, Recep Tayyip er Erdogan in, in, in Turkey. Um, uh, this is uh, you know, Hungary. There's, there's a whole bunch of different countries, but really the, the place where this, pro this process of the emergence of popular authoritarians uh, or put it more common parlance, popular dictators, uh, is, is Russia. Russia really is, I think, the, the starting point for this process. And a lot of the technologies and a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the processes of building a popular authoritarian regime started in, in, in Russia. And so um, I think Russia is a really interesting uh, case to look at and, and something we can learn a lot about this more general phenomenon from. Um, most of the existing research uh, in political science uh, on authoritarianism will teach you virtually nothing uh, about popular authoritarianism. It'll teach you lots about some things that are interesting, uh, including you know, the role of institutions and whatnot. But essentially, most of the research in political science uh, is about either economic sentiment, um, or it's about patronage distribution, or it's about political institutions and how they're used to sort of manage the, the electorate and manage the populace, or they're about repression and fraud. And there's nothing really in there about popular mobilization. And in part, this is, I argue anyway, uh, with Sam, is, is, is a result of a framework for understanding authoritarianism that, that, that goes back to the 1970s, in particular the writings of, of Juan Lintz, in which we see authoritarianism as something that's sort of imposed upon an unwilling society, and they have to be either crushed or paid off uh, in order to accept it. Um, and this, I think, is not the right way to understand authoritarianism uh, in the world today. And so we try and come up with, with, with a different way of looking at it. Uh, and in this paper that, that, that on which this talk is built, and to a very large degree in, in our book, um, we focus on emotional engagement. We focus on reasons why people become emotionally engaged, involved, uh, with, uh, the, with the authoritarian regime. And what I'm going to show you today is evidence of that emotional engagement that in Russia, in a particular time period, uh, and that's, that's something that's important to bear in mind, um, with, there's real good evidence that, that, that popular uh, trust, uh, hope, um, pride uh, in the regime became a really significant part of the regime's legitimation strategy. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack where that those emo that emotional engagement comes from, and I'm going to argue that it's really social, that it's not only an individual phenomenon, or it may be somewhat an individual phenomenon, but it's really the interaction of people with other people in their society uh, that generates that emotional 
uh, engagement. And then I'm going to demonstrate some of the, what I think are quite wide-ranging implications, wide-ranging consequences of emotional engagement across a whole range of different attitudes and orientations that go well beyond just the regime uh, itself. Um, to do so, I'm going to talk about political psychology. Um, there is, it, interestingly enough, um, when we think about understanding authoritarianism, uh, psychology was really back in the 1950s and, the, and just after the, the end of the Second World War was really central to how people understood authoritarian regimes, non-democratic regimes, um, uh, in the work of you know, Adorno and others and uh, Hannah Arendt, but it really fell out of favor, um, really in the context, I could go on about this forever, I won't, but it really in, in, the, in the context of a battle between the sort of two different forms of the totalitarian school, one uh, which emphasized a kind of top-down, extremely powerful state associated with Friedrich and Brzezinski, and then Hannah Arendt, on the other hand, who had a more societal perspective on the sources of, 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 of totalitarianism. Well, the top-down people, for various reasons, are, you know, that are interesting but highly political, um, won out. And psychology kind of dropped out of the story altogether and was replaced ultimately by, by Lintz's uh, story of demobilization and, and, and paying people off. Um, not surprisingly, given the times that we live in, psychology has made a big comeback in political science. It looks very different from how it used to look. Um, uh, it's much more, I would argue, much more uh, rigorous, both theoretically and empirically. But it's a really, it's become, it's come back in the study of democratic politics. And so one of the things that we're doing uh, in this paper and the, and the book is to, is to, th is to look at psych the psychology of, of authoritarianism uh, in Russia uh, and, 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 and uh, unpack that. There is already some work on that um, in, in political science and in sociology. Um, most of it focuses on... Uh, the psychology of the opposition, the emotions experienced, the emotions that either mobilize or demobilize opposition. Wendy Parliament has really great work uh, on, the, on this issue. Um, or it's about fear. Um, and there's some nice work showing the role of fear in either encouraging or discouraging uh, political action um, in, in, uh, in authoritarian regimes. We're doing something different, which is we're talking about positive emotions. Right? To get back to the original puzzle about uh, popular authoritarianism. Um, and what we're going to argue is that what's one of the things that's really important to popular authoritarianism and to the generation of positive emotions is collective participation. Um, participation in the experience, uh, the national experience, if you like, um, of, uh, of politics. Um, a participation that, that, that can be mediated. Um, we, are, we set a low bar where you can participate from the couch. Uh, if you like, um, in, our, in our version, and I'm, I'm happy to talk about why I think participation, or what we call mediated participation, uh, is, a, is, a, is a thing uh, and is important. Um, but what we argue, and it really, it's the, this, this argument that we make about participation goes back a long way in, so, in sociology, it goes back to Durkheim, um, it's our arguments about the origins of religion and, and physical synchrony and acting together in um, generating what Durkheim called collective effervescence. Um, but there's lots of examples of this in the, in the sociology literature, examples about studies of, of, of soccer fans uh, and the importance of being in the terraces and understanding the rituals uh, and, and, the, and the, the identity creation uh, processes that can, that can happen when you're all together on the, on the one page witnessing the same thing and, and responding to it uh, interactively. There's also some really interesting work on um, many of you remember the riots in, in Ferguson, Missouri, 
uh, a number of years ago. Um, studies of people who followed it on Twitter and then you know, reported having participated because they felt like we participated. And really the experience and then some of the attitude change that you see amongst participants was also found uh, amongst these you know, Twitter participants. So mediated participation, especially in the world that we live in today, is, a, is, a, is, is, is real, I would argue, uh, and, and, a, and, a, and a pretty significant thing. And we're going to look at some evidence of that uh, in, the, in the paper. The point about this participation is that, or even, even if mediated, it can really change people's attitudes. Uh, and it changes attitudes, as we'll show uh, in the, as I'll show you in a little while, across a whole range of different items that are totally unrelated to the actual events that, 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 that are going on. Um, the implications of all of this, I, I, I think, are on a, a number of different levels. The first thing is that we're going to um, get a, a different version or a different uh, take on the, the, the Crimea experience in Russian politics and what actually happened uh, around Crimea. There's, it's very well known that, that President Putin experienced an in, a, a very substantial increase uh, in his popularity as a result of the, of the annexation of Crimea and the events uh, that, that, that followed. Um, but I'm going to show that it goes way beyond popularity and actually uh, involves people reassessing the world that they live in in a really uh, uh, particular way. It shows the, the reassessing their present, um, reassessing the future, with the direction they expect Russia to go in, and then, most interestingly, reassessing their own past, changing their own narrative uh, about the past because they feel better about everything, uh, essentially, as a result of this uh, experience. That's important for Russian politics, I think. It's also important for understanding authoritarianism. It shows uh, how interaction among citizens uh, and, and their engagement with, with politics can actually strengthen an authoritarian regime, can lead to what, what Sam and I call the co-construction of authoritarianism. Authoritarianism is not just opposed by, from above, as it, does in the as it is in the standard political science model, um, but is also not only imposed from above, but is also created from below through the interaction of citizens amongst themselves. Uh, and the work also has some, some uh, big implications in, politi for, in political science for the study of what they call rally around the flag effects that many of you be familiar with when some foreign adventure uh, has big consequences for domestic politics. And the, the Crimean moment uh, that, that we're going to look at, uh, you can really see the construction of, of, of this wave of, of, of enthusiasm or, or madness, depending on uh, how you want to think about it. Um, so that's the... That's sort of the agenda. Um, I'm going to pursue this agenda through um, specifically looking at, as you've guessed by now, Crimea uh, and the annexation of Crimea. I call it the Crimean moment, um, in part because what I want to point to is not just the annexation itself, um, but also the, the whole kind of paraphernalia, the social uh, mobilization, the media onslaught, um, the, uh, the war in, in, in Ukraine, uh, in the east of Ukraine, the, um, the propaganda and counter-propaganda around that. This was all sort of one sort of long run, not long running, but, but months long experience that, 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 that was really had dramatic effects uh, in, in Ukraine, but also in, 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 in even more so in Russian domestic politics. And so I want to call it this the, 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 the Crimean moment. Um, this is uh, really adopting Kirill Rogov's uh, perspective uh, on Crimea, and a lot of our uh, research um, provides empirical uh, underpinnings, if you like, for a lot of the things that the Kirill has been saying. Um, 
Uh, and so that's the, that's the focus. Um, the key part uh, that um, I'm going to show you about Crimea is not just that there was a, a big rise in popularity, as I said, but there was a big rise also uh, in, in, in political engagement um, through this period. We went from a, a period where this is, this is from, from the, the protests of 2011 when Putin's popularity was, was really collapsing and you know, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets saying goodbye, Mr. Putin, um, to a period where Putin became really a kind of national symbol, uh, a, 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 an emblem, if you like, uh, not just of uh, himself and, 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 and his regime, but, but of Russia, right? Really a change in his, in his identity. Um, I'm going to look at it through the lens of uh, a survey. I'm a political scientist, and so at the end of the day, it gets back to some data collection. What we did was uh, we collected, conducted online surveys um, amongst educated uh, middle and upper income uh, Russians in, in, in big cities, in cities with more than a, a million uh, inhabitants. This was all conducted online. Uh, I can talk about how we did it uh, more if, if, if you're particularly interested in that. But we did a two-wave panel survey. So we interviewed the same recipients before, the same respondents before Crimea and after uh, Crimea. We did the first round in, in, in October uh, of 2013. We had 12,000 respondents. <clears throat> this, is, um, this is sort of after the um, beginnings of, of, of Putin's attempt to refound his regime from being one based purely on economics to being one based on conservative values, um, to being one based on anti-gay legislation, um, uh, you know, legislation to um, defend the, the Orthodox Church, um, uh, and really to reorient Putin as the defender of traditional values against some kind of Western uh, effete enemy. Um, so that was the first round of the survey. We had already started that process. And the second round of the survey is, is, is July um, 2014. So this is post-Crimea, it's post the war in the Donbass, um, and it's also uh, just before the shooting down of MH17. Um, so that's, we're right in that, that window there. And, and we, we interviewed 715 of the original respondents. Now what that design allows you to do um, is to not just see how things change, not just to see how Putin's popularity goes up, uh, uh, and, and, and to see how much TV people watch or any of that, but to see exactly how it changes at the individual level. Who, for whom does Putin's popularity go up? For whom does TV watching go up? For whom does engagement with politics go up? All of these different things, and then you can parse them out. This is the, 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 the attractiveness of the, of the panel uh, design. Um, so what did we find? Well, we found, like everybody else found, um, that Putin's popularity soars um, between before and after uh, um, uh, Crimea. What we find is that the before and all of these things is going to be in dark blue. Uh, and then amongst our urban sample, um, somewhere in the region of 45, nearly 50% uh, of people disapproved um, of Putin, at least to, to, to some degree, um, while you know, slightly more, um, or by a similar number, uh, approved, just over uh, what, mid 50s per, per, percent. Yeah. So are these the same 715? These are all the same 715. Okay. So this is all based on just the, the people who answered in both rounds. I should say that the people who answered in the second round and the people who didn't answer in the second round had identical support for Putin beforehand and, and, and pretty much on all of our questions. So it was, it was it's pretty much random with respect to any of our 
uh, with any of our variables. And so that's, um, and we also model the, 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 the attrition and, and it all holds with, the, with attrition weighted uh, uh, regressions. Um, but this is, yeah, so this is just the, the, the 750. Our group in this first round is less supportive um, of Putin than um, you would find in the Levada uh, surveys, which are nationally representative. This is because we, had, we deliberately selected a sample of urbanites, educated urbanites, um, with a view to, this really goes back to thinking about where do revolutions come from, where do you know, urban, in particular urban revolutions come from, the kind of revolutions that we've seen uh, pretty commonly since around uh, 1989. Um, and so, not, so to, instead of trying to take a national sample, which doesn't give you the data you need, we want to focus in on, on, on these people. What's really interesting is after, after Crimea, um, Putin's popularity shoots up within this group to about 80%, which is the same uh, as the national sample. So we started off with a group that was significantly more skeptical um, before Crimea, and we end up with a group that's identical um, or very, very similar after. Um, so popularity goes up, everybody knows it, but it's not just popularity. We asked a, whole, a, a series of questions about emotions. Um, and we asked people, for example, are you proud of how Russia is governed? Right? Um, and what we found was before Crimea, nobody was proud of how Russia was governed, right? So four is the intermediate variable, and then five is a, is a little bit, six is quite a bit, and seven is like a whole lot. Um, and we found about 15% of our respondents were proud of how Russia was governed before, and that goes up to uh, 36, 37% afterwards. So it more than doubles um, in the period we're talking about. There's still people who are skeptical, um, uh, but, but way fewer people are skeptical than before. And what's kind of interesting is that we get a kind of, across all of the categories, we get an increase, right? So this is not a phenomenon that's, it's not like we find those people in the middle all shoot up here and the skeptics remain skeptics. No, what we find is across the board, there's an increase uh, in in pride in, in how Russia is, is, is governed. Um, we also asked about trust for Russia's leaders and we find the same, the same kind of thing. Before Crimea, basically hardly anybody trusted uh, Russia's leaders. Uh, and after Crimea, you know, we have really large numbers, 35, nearly, nearly, nearly you know, more than 40% of people saying that yes, I do trust uh, Russia's leaders. This is pretty dramatic. Um, and we think about all the reasons not to trust them, it's, it's really impressive. When you think about this group in particular, this is educated urbanites uh, on the internet. This is, uh, again, uh, pretty striking. Um, and then a third question we asked was, does the way Russia is governed give you hope for the future? Uh, and before Crimea, the short answer was no. Um, again, you know, getting up for uh, 50, 60, 70% who disagreed with this. You can see I'm not very good at doing math in my head on the f and talking at the same time. But, um, and then after Crimea, there's, there's, a, there's a, an enormous shift. And again, it's a, it's a step shift across the whole, the whole range of the spectrum. So we have this big emotional engagement increase um, after Crimea. We also see some other stuff that's really interesting and, 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 and kind of uh, would be unexpected. We asked people how serious a problem is high level corruption uh, in the country and, and so before Crimea, about 30% said it wasn't a problem. Um, uh, and you know, after Crimea, it's nearly 50% that says it's not, not a serious problem, so it's gone up. Um, even the, uh, uh, you know, even with the rosiest interpretation of, of the Crimea the, the moment, the idea that this would somehow have an effect on corruption at the highest level seems uh, a stretch. 
Um, how about uh, street level corruption, low level corruption? Again, um, about 40% didn't think it was a serious problem before, and more than 50% think don't think it's a serious problem afterwards. So Crimea magically also uh, reduces low level corruption in Russia. Again, something uh, that doesn't seem very plausible in terms of empirics. Um, how about uh, expectations for the economy? We asked, how do you think the Russian economy is going to perform in the next three years? Is it going to be worse, the same, or better? Um, less than 25% uh, before Crimea thought it was going to be better, and 35% after thought it was going to be better. So even though even the, the Russian media was saying there's going to be a price to pay, this is you know, not even thinking about the effect of sanctions, but just in terms of the economic uh, challenges of incorporating Crimea uh, into, 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 into uh, the Russian economy. And then finally, we asked people, how did your family do in the economic changes of the 1990s? And here the effects are a little smaller, um, but they're still uh, significant and interesting. Um, around 40% of our group thought that they did pretty well in the 90s, which in itself I thought was really, really interesting and a good bit higher than I was expecting. But of course, after Crimea, the 90s were better uh, than they were before. Um, so so that's, that's, these are the same individuals, right? This is, this is, this is the Crimea, the, the magic of Crimea. Um, so what explains all, all of that kind of rise in, in emotional engagement? Well, what we argue is that larger increases in participation in the collective experience of Crimea, and I'll talk about what I mean by that in a, in a minute, is going to lead to larger increases in positive emotions, and then that those increases in positive emotions um, are going to mediate the, the effects of, of participation on, um, on, on these other issues. What, what is that? Can I say that in English? Uh, essentially, to the extent that you, that, you, that you increased your engagement with politics, you then increased your emotions, and, 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 and through those, it was those emotions that then lead to the different effects on the, on the future and the past and the corruption attitudes that I'm going to look at. And if you increase your engagement with politics but didn't get more emotionally engaged, then the effects are going to be smaller um, uh, on, these, on, these other, on, the, on these other issues. Um, so what's our empirical strategy? Well, two stages, obviously. We're going to start off by showing that participation shapes the increase in emotional engagement, and then we're going to show how the, that, the emotional engagement mediates the effect on these other, on these other outcomes. So how do we measure participation in the collective experience? Um, well, we do it in, in three ways. Um, one was to, uh, the most kind of simplest way is to ask people how much they talk about politics with their friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, uh, people on the internet. Um, so we asked them that before Crimea, and we asked them that after. And we looked at how an increase in that amount of political discussion, that direct engagement with talking about politics, uh, changes uh, emotions. Um, we also looked at people's general level of interest in politics as a more kind of direct uh, way of looking at it. Um, and then we asked about how often people watch state television news. Um, we argue that, and I'm happy to talk about it, but we argue that, that watching television, state television, or any kind of television news is a, actually a collective uh, experience, even if you're doing it on your own, um, one of the few collective experiences you can do on your own, um, because you're engaging in a message that is being, that's coordinated and that lots of other people are getting at the same time. And so you're sharing an experience with other people doing the same activity. Um, this has been impossible to sell to political science <laughs> reviewers, but, 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 I, but I, I think it makes sense to me, and it probably makes sense to sociologists, I think. 
And there's actually quite a bit of literature actually in, in sociology about how TV is a collective uh, experience. Um, how do we measure emotions? Well, we measured before, as I said, we have pride, we have hope, and we have trust. Um, these actually, if you, if you analyze them separately, all behave very similarly. So we create an index uh, out of them. The, 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 the uh, alpha coefficient is about 0.9. In other words, they behave almost identically across the board. So you might as well make an index out of them. Um, and we ran these uh, essentially um, time series cross-section OLS models with individual level fixed effects. This is the very same as running uh, a difference in difference model for those that are interested in these things. And we looked at the effects of our variables controlling for uh, nationalism, which I'll get back to in a minute, um, for voting, partisanship, uh, the sector that you, of the economy that you work in, basically whether it's the private sector or the public sector, this matters a lot uh, in Russia. Uh, gender, age, education, where you live in Moscow and, and, and what your income is, or, or how wealthy you are. We asked them a series of questions about things that you could buy. Uh, and what we find is that um, the big ex ex explanation of increases in emotions are watching more, uh, watching more state TV, uh, being more interested in politics, uh, and discussing politics more. Um, the only other things that matter is people who are more educated, who get more educated between the two rounds. There's like three people in our sample that graduate from college uh, between the two rounds, and so that they apparently, like they really got into this thing. Um, and people who are, who are better off uh, tend to also be more, more uh, or who become better off between the two, the two rounds. This is all about changes. What we find is that if you um, uh, start watching more state TV, and one standard deviation increase in watching state TV causes about a 1.7 standard deviation. These are all um, standardized beta coefficients. Uh, in the emotions index, the, the bigger effect, almost twice as much from uh, increasing your interest in politics or from, from uh, talking about politics more. Right? So the first part of our story, there's pretty good support for. And in fact, this is what's really interesting about Russian politics, I think, is that it's very hard to explain attitudes with uh, the usual variables that we use to explain attitudes everywhere else. And Ted will know more about this than me. But, but in education, income, you know, uh, nationality, gender, these things sort of work a little bit, but they don't work a whole lot. Um, and, and what's really interesting here is we have these variables, these, these political, political variables, really, and, and behavioral variables that actually do, do more work than the, the, the usual suspects. So we're kind of excited about, about that. Um, what about stage two? Well, this is this mediation thing that I was talking about uh, before. What we're going to try and show in stage two is that participation in the collective experience of Crimea leads to positive emotions, and that leads to these improved sense of well-being uh, that, that we saw earlier. There is also a direct effect, and we can actually estimate empirically what each of those relationships are. And we do this using uh, causal mediation analysis. Um, this, is, uh, this is for approval. I've got tons, I've got, I've got more than 20 of these, if you have all day. But let's just focus on a couple of them. There is, this is looking at the effect of discussion, increasing discussion on emotions and on approval. This is the, uh, the, 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 sort of the, the, the size of the effect um, of a one unit increase in uh, discussion on uh, emotions. That's, that's the, the percentage that goes through to approval through emotions. And this is the direct effect. So this, this 0.6 uh, is this, and the 0.5 is that, right? Um, if that makes sense. And what we find is that, at least in terms of approval, three quarters of the, of the effect 
of, 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 of talking about politics more uh, actually goes through uh, emotions. When we look at um, the uh, attitudes to high-level corruption, the effect is smaller, but still about 30% of the effect goes through emotions and not just directly through uh, increased discussion. Um, when we looked at low-level low uh, corruption, it's, 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 it's about a quarter. Um, when we look at views on the economic future, again, it's, it's two-thirds, right? A really big proportion of the effect of the increase can be explained through, can only be explained through this, this, uh, this, this increase uh, in emotional engagement. Um, and when we look at the 90s, the effect is, a, is this is the smallest one of the effects. Uh, and I don't know why these vary so much across each other, but you know, I'm very interested to hear uh, any suggestions people have. But about 15 um, percent, so about you know just about an eighth of the of the effect uh, goes through emotions, uh, and the rest is the rest is is, is, is direct. Um, there are lots of lots of things that you could complain about uh, in this paper, right? Um, so, for example, one thing that we can't tell is what causes increased engagement, right? Our story begins with people engaging more in politics. This is a room full of people who know why people might get more engaged in politics uh, after the annexation of Crimea. Um, what's hard is to think about that in, in theoretical terms, in abstract terms, that could be generalizable, and I don't have a good story about that, and, 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 and also I don't have a test of that, so... Um, uh, so that's something that, that, that we can't say. Well, I can say that when engagement goes up, um, uh, all of these other things change. Um, I can't tell you whether engagement causes emotions or emotions cause engagement. Um, to my mind, like you get more interested in something, you feel emotional about it, you get more interested in something. This is a, a reciprocal relationship in, in my life, but you know, I don't know. I can't prove that uh, one way or the other. Um, but I can show you that engagement without emotion doesn't have the same size of effects as engagement with emotion. So emotion is not the only thing going on here, but it's a really important part uh, of the story. Um, you could say, oh, well, yeah, you're saying, so this is about Crimea and it's the change, but isn't there some, couldn't there be something else going on? And of course, there could be something else going on that, that, that you know, my imagination is not capable of coming up with. Um, if you have something else that could be causing all of this, please let me know. It has to have three characteristics. It has to change between October 2013 and, 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 and June 2014, so between the two rounds of the, of the survey. It has to be correlated with the emotional engagement uh, items that we find, and it has to be correlated with all of our outcomes, right? So it has to be correlated with improving the 1990s, right? So the big alternative to emotions that people put forward is, is that, well, the annexation of Crimea was, was amazing, and it showed the Russian government to be competent. Uh, and that surprised everybody. It certainly surprised the U.S. military uh, how good they were at it. Um, may have surprised themselves. Um, but if it's competence, if you, all of a sudden it's not, you're not, it's not about emotional engagement, it's about competence, then why would people's attitudes to the 1990s get better? Right? This is what's one of the things that's nice uh, about that. Um, you, also, if it was due to another uh, uncontrolled for factor, then you would expect all these variables to go up and down in lockstep with one another, and actually they don't. Um, the, the, the corruption variables go up and down together, but they're not related uh, to, the, you know, to the attitudes to the future of the economy or to the past. They, 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 they're, they're, they're separate. Um, maybe it's all uh, nationalism. Right? What really happens is people get, feel more patriotic. Right? This was, in some sense, this, this is Kirill's argument. This is one of the big kind of counter-arguments uh, to our story. 
that's out there. So we measured nationalism. We measured it in a bunch of different ways. We looked into uh, you know, how important is it to your identity to be part of the Russian state? How important is it to be part of the Russian nation? How about Russian culture? How about the Orthodox Church? Um, we measured all of these. The one that performs the best, the most powerful alternative is the Russian state. Right? So people did people become more proud of being associated with the Russian state? The truth is that actually the responses to those variables change very little between the two rounds. Russians are very proud of the Russian state. It's important to them, both before Crimea and after Crimea. They're also, to a lesser extent, proud of Russian culture and, 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 and Russian ethnicity. Right? Um, so let's see what happens if we, if we compare the effect of, of, of nationalism um, with our various outcomes. What we find is that if you just put nationalism in on its own, it's a, it's a very significant uh, exp exp explanation for increases in approval. Um, it's a pretty significant explanation for increases in that, uh, estimations of the economic future. Um, uh, but it doesn't do much for you in terms of the past, and it doesn't do much for you in terms of corruption. Um, and then when you throw in positive emotions and nationalism at the same time, the effect of nationalism goes away. So nationalism just doesn't really change very much, uh, and the emotions variable uh, blows it out of the water. And so what really we're having here is not so much uh, a story of Russians feeling more Russian uh, or more proud of being Russian, um, but Russians just feeling better in general and feeling better about the regime and being more engaged with the regime and being prouder of it, being more hopeful uh, uh, and more trusting than they, than they were before. Um, this big increases in emotional engagement. Uh, we knew about the popularity, but we didn't know uh, about, we had lots of anecdotal stories about, about emotional engagement, but uh, this is the first real uh, you know, evidence, real, real systematic evidence, I think, uh, that that went on. Um, we have argued that this is really a result of, of a collective process, a collective uh, euphoria, or, or as Durkheim called it, collective effervescence. Um, it has really wide-ranging effects. Uh, it's social, um, and I think you know really really important in understanding um, the Russian politics in that period between Crimea and 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 you know arguably last year or maybe still now or or or, or what I think you know I don't have much evidence one way or the other on that but it's a really really important aspect of of Russian politics in, in recent years and if you want to learn more uh, or if you don't want to learn more <laughs> anyway it's very cheap. Uh, and it's written in a very accessible and fun manner, at least we tried. Um, you can find it in Putin versus the People. Thanks. Okay, thanks a lot, Grant. So we have time for questions, comments? So. Yeah.
But uh, what about uh, some negative consequences of uh, this uh, experience? Uh, did you analyze it? Did you consider it somehow? Because like, I can give you several examples, even with this uh, Crimea annexation. Mm -hmm. What I remember was not only euphoria, but also growing of this feeling of that, like the growing um, Crimea, specifically uh, uh, Crimea, produced a, a huge spirit within Russian society, right? A lot of political movement was fleeing. I, I remember how I came home after my field work in Ukraine in summer 2014, mm -hmm. and I was like generally uh, accused that I am an enemy of Russia because I just I was not completely <laughs> because I said that uh, Crimea is the, the history of annexation. So that was not only a theory that was also like the feeling that we have a lot of enemies everywhere that some people are like consistent right. and create this unity, but other people are outside of that. And we see a kind of same thing with uh, Maidan. Like Maidan produced this feeling of the unity of nation, right? In a way, Maidan created this nation, the seed of a nation. People uh, understood somehow one day that they really love Ukraine, but then the next step was for them, right? They understood that there are some other people who didn't participate in Maidan. And those people, they kind of, they live in Ukraine, but they kind of enemies, they're not real Ukrainians. So, so we see that in this case, this experience of collective action that also produced not only this effervescence, but also some spleen in society sure. and a lot of negative emotions. So the question is, did you consider it somehow and in which way? And the last question, it's not even a question, maybe that's a comment. So you asked about the variable, which can also be considered. Mm -hmm. So I, what I uh, see as missing I mean, uh, an annexation of, of Crimea uh, happened at the same time uh, when this conflict between uh, within Ukraine, but also between right. Russia and Ukraine, was at the moment of like rising. Because people went from Russia to Ukraine to take part in all that, and there was like Russian TV and media that was all on TV. So I think that the conflict played an uh, important role in all that. And I also have a small comment on nationalism that. Uh, I'm not sure that we can talk about nationalism in this case only in a way of like we have more nationalism, people start to, people love Russia more, love Russia more uh, after annexation of Crimea or they love Russia less. So that's not a question of like more or less, maybe that's the question of how. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe we just should ask try to understand this uh, I, I would I, I would say that we have a new kind of nationalism in Russia after Crimea and after Ukrainian conflict. But it's not just I feel more Russian like it was in Ukraine. It's something different. Like this for example this is like how people attach themselves to some historical events. Uh, mm -hmm. Victory Day that was reconsidered. That was always very important thing for Russia. But after Crimea and after Ukrainian conflict that was reconsidered, and a lot of people they just rethink the uh, the way they like have the connections with their past and their grandparents and all this stuff. So maybe the question of nationalism is not the question of like more or less, sure. but the question of how and like what is the nationalism. Right. It's not that's not only I love Russia. I don't mm -hmm. love Russia. I feel Russian. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, th thanks, Natalia. Really, really. Uh, I'm sorry. I was no, those are great. Those are great. We'll let you respond to whatever. Okay. Nothing much to say. Uh, yeah. Um, so on the first one about emotions being different in, in democracies versus authoritarian regimes, if I said that I misspoke, what I meant to say is is that there's been a lot of study of emotions in democracies and not much in authoritarian regimes. I actually think they operate very similarly. Um, I actually think that a lot of the stuff we say about democracies and, and authoritarian regimes um, and how different they are is not true. And I think there's, you know, there's, there is a difference between democracy and autocracy, um, but there's lots of other variables, lots of other aspects to life that are quite similar. And my, my work on, 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 on protest was, was really self-consciously trying to, uh, you know, use the tools from, think about protest and, and autocracies in a similar framework. And that's what we're trying to do here as well, is to treat um, people in, 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 in Russia, but in particular in the book, but in autocracies, uh, um, as, you know, people who, as, as self-conscious uh, political actors and not just the subjects of some, of some, some regime. And, and so I think uh, I really want to downplay and, and, and uh, stop talking about autocracy and, and democracy as two separate things and, and, and try and understand better how they work in similar ways, and I think our own policy teaches a lot about that. Um, in terms of the effect of participation, so negative effects, absolutely. Um, we, uh, we were anticipating polarization when, we, when I started running this, that you would find um, that for some groups of people got more engaged and other people got, so we also asked about anger. Um, we asked about contempt. Um, we asked about, I can't remember what the third one was. Um, but what we found was essentially it moved in very similar directions. And, and you know, the opposite direction, they all went, anger reduced and contempt for the regime reduced. Um, uh, and what we were really struck with was at least at this aggregated data level, it was very hard to see evidence of polarization. Now, if you looked at people who were opponents of the regime, you know, who, who scored Putin on you know the lowest level of approval before? Um, they, be, they, they, they some of them became more angry. Um, some of them, you know, very few of them trusted him. You know, were, were proud, but to the extent that that, that was there, that, that that went away. But the effect was really small. And part of it, I think, is that the people that that we often interact with as academics are are, are really not anything close to a representative sample, right? Um, and they represent a a pretty narrow sliver uh, of Russian society, and, and maybe even narrower than we than we think. And, and so, I mean, if if we if it was a substa substantial effect, you would have expected to see it in the group of people that we talk to, which are these educated urbanites, and even in that group, um, the effect you can you can kind of see it if you stare hard enough, but it's not it's not really you know large enough to 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 to, to be there. Uh, in terms of the I mean, the overall theoretical story that you're telling, I think, is absolutely right. I've done, we've done a lot of survey work in Ukraine. Um, and one of the things we looked at in Ukraine is civic identity uh, and, the ex and, and, and language use. Um, and what we find is that, yes, after the Maidan, um, people were much more willing to accept, even in eastern Ukraine, that, that, that you know, Ukraine was their homeland, right, um, uh, than, than, than before the Maidan. But we also found that um, there wasn't this kind of broad adoption of Ukrainian uh, as, 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 as the language people used. Instead, what we found is that uh, people who lived in towns where 
more than 50%, more than 60% of the population, more than 60% of the population who are using Ukrainian started to switch to speak more Ukrainian. But in towns where the majority were Russian speakers, or a large majority were Russian speakers, you got the opposite uh, dynamic. Um, and so you get this kind of polarization in language use. And so I think you, there's not much evidence of it in the, in the Russian data, but in the Ukrainian data, you can really see um, that kind of thing. Um, and then in terms of the conflict, I mean, I totally agree. We, just because of the timing, we can't separate these things uh, empirically. Um, you know, we have interviews with, in the book with, 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 with Girkin um, and some of the other people who went to, to, to fight in Ukraine. Um, and and it, for them, the big attitude changers were um, uh, actually, you know, at first they went to fight the fascists um, in Ukraine, and then after a while they realized that the Russian government wasn't there for them, uh, and so then they ended up alienated from, from, from Moscow as well. Right? That's, the, that's the experiential story that they'll tell you, right? Um, and so that's definitely part of the thing. I think in terms of um, you know, the consciousness of the, of, of the kind of people we speak to in, uh, in surveys, Crimea was probably more important, but you know, it's just uh, I don't have evidence that shows that. But thanks, those are, those are super thoughtful questions. Yeah. yeah. So I'm kind of curious, um, are there Martians who are kind of about Europe? What's the intuition? Are there Martians more about Putin, about the regime in general, about Russia in general, or about or themselves? Yeah. Right. So if your education level changes, if you, if you graduate from between one round and the next. Wouldn't that mean that for, for all those who, uh, who have fixed levels, they will drop out? Yeah. Anything is fixed in this. There's a difference in difference. Anything that's fixed has no effect. In terms of uh, understanding the meaning of these questions, we asked them in two ways. The people who, who did our polling for us wouldn't ask, um, how much do you, how angry are you at Vladimir Putin? Um, how much do you, how much can, you know, do you hate the, the Russian government, right? Or Vladimir Putin. You weren't allowed to use Putin's name. So what we did was we asked it in two ways. We asked about Russia's leadership. I think we all know who we're talking about. Uh, and we asked about how Russia is governed. And so that's a kind of a more, trying to think of a, the, 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 you know, the state more generally. Um, there's really no difference between the two of them. Um, so I don't, either that means Putin is more central or or he's indistinguishable from the state. You know, have have you know guesses on that? And I, I suspect it's really it's really Putin we're talking about here. But um, but we couldn't. They wouldn't let us ask about that directly, unfortunately. Yeah, please. Right. And 
So, so the short answer is no. I mean, uh, we just have we just have what sector you work in, whether it's public sector or private sector, and we expected that to be different, and and, it, and it's not, which is really you know it's 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 what sector you work in is a good predictor of of, of whether you support uh, uh, United Russia or, the, or 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 Putin and what your approval rating is. So we expected that to matter, but at least in terms of the dynamics. Um, but both of those questions about everyday patriotism and and and, and you know, kind of the habitus of, of, of patriotism, uh, you know, I, I, it, it, those are very hard to get at in a in a in a survey in this this methodology. Um, I think what we found is consistent with those kinds of things, with about you know just generally feeling better about about everything. Um, uh, so not feeling the way we, we describe it in the book, I think, is, is is not feeling more Russian, but feeling better about being Russian, right? And um, uh, we also found sort of. Uh, um, in terms of enemies, so uh, we found uh, that uh, the percentage of people who think that, that the U.S. is an enemy went up dramatically, um, but that was somewhat compensated for so if, by the people who decided that China wasn't an enemy anymore, right? Um, which you know, I'm not sure what China has to do with any of this, but I think it's part of that general kind of uh, orientation. And so there is this really widespread um, feel-good factor, if you want to call it that. Um, that extends to, to, to a lot of different things. Yeah. yeah. I just want to ask something. So you started off with the, the other other sort of you know pop, you know populist or however you, you want to describe them authoritarians. You know how much does this this framework travel to them? I mean, you know, because it's not everybody who gets to annex the Crimea. Right. And then you might also wonder, you know, in a counterfactual, if they tried to annex Crimea and it's gone badly. So I mean, you could imagine political engagement of talking in Washington TV for like the late Iraq war in the US, mostly probably for that unhappy feelings. Yep. You know, would that have the same, the, the reverse effects? Right. If they'd lost in Crimea or, you know, it somehow tried to go in and didn't stop? Um, so in terms of the, the first one, um, you know, I, I'd love to know if, if, if you can find the same Factors in, in you know in, in Turkey and Hungary and, and um, 
my guess is yes, and I'm asking the NSF to give me money so I can I can give you some data on that. Um, what's interesting is that the parts of the kind of Putin strategy that they've copied is more the kind of uh, bulwark against you know effete Westernism and defending our traditional values. That looks very so the kind of the pre-Crimea, uh, if you like, uh, sale that Putin was making. Um, and that's that's kind of helped these regimes get through tough economic times, and I think that's you know that's pretty pretty similar across um, regimes. But I don't have data. Um, would in, in part because people don't ask these emotions questions. So this is one of the other things that, that that's sort of new about this work is that we're you know or at least not new, but brings it into political science uh, is, is is these questions about emotional engagement. Um, had Crimea gone gone wrong, I think you know quite likely we would have had a, a really different story. One of the things that distinguishes this Russian story from rally stories in the West um, is the duration of uh, the boost that the regime gets. So, the, so you know, Putin gets four years out of this thing, right? Um, in uh, the Malvinas War and in, in the, the, the Margaret Thatcher in the in the 1980s, she gets about six months, not even about four months. Uh, and George Bush gets about six months out of uh, out of Gulf War One. Um, and I guess his son gets 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 nearly a year out of 9/11. Um, but what happens in those uh, contexts is that everyone is forced, all the elites are forced to you know side with the with, with the nation with, the, with him and the, its embodiment in their in their leader because it's war. Um, but oppositions quick, quickly find a way to get back to being oppositions, and they start to criticize not the fact of the war or the fact of the attack, but the management of that. Uh, and, and what you can see in, in, in your research in American politics and British politics and Israeli politics actually is that these kind of rallies dissipate as soon as the, as the, as the opposition returns to criticizing you get back to kind of the baseline you were at before. In an authoritarian regime like Russia, um, there is more criticism in some circles, but it's not on state TV, it's not mass, and, it's, and, and there's certainly very, there's, there's no mainstream elite figures are starting to criticize the regime, or very, very, very few. Um, uh, you know, and they might get covered in Vedimusti, but they don't get covered on on, 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 on on TV. And so you don't have that mechanism to kind of break the, 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 the to burst the bubble. And so it goes on for much, much longer. Um, had Crimea gone horribly wrong in a way that was, you know, t tangible and palpable and, and visible, you know, then, then that would be, you know, a different, a different story, obviously. Uh, yeah. <coughs> I like a lot of your presentation, but I have now a bit of a fun of uh, uh, asking your challenge. Can anything else explain? It's because what do you explain? And actually, now you were really nice bringing up to my question, especially saying that Putin is a rally around the black water, so taking so long. I mean, Putin profited from it. And then uh, that's what I would like to propose is that maybe it's not really around the black then. It's uh, just a preference for simplification, the same thing that was in Soviet Union, where smart, intelligent people knew that the politics grandparents, they would say, went to Gulag for, you know, for any cause or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, they would be just smart enough to say uh, something positive on the line. And, and then I just, uh, I'm just afraid that, you know, um, the thing is uh, that your sample is based on uh, urban, educated crowd, as I understand, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this crowd, I mean, they shouldn't be so silly, right? So they might be just answering to any uh, suspicious foreign story or not for anything political would be answered as mm -hmm. uh, let's just keep in line with the, the general
general topic of eating. And then you show one slide where you say, hey, look, it, it's uh, for someone is eating, uh, that their opinions were converging towards the, what you find in general service nowadays. And if, uh, if that's not something that's uh, kind of a red flag against your uh, really rancid flag thing, and rather preference for certification, I don't know um, like how to point it even more. Okay. Yeah. I just really find that uh, Russians are, I mean, and well, uh, Natalia was also pointing out that, I mean, this was uh, actually something going on around also the military conflict. There was something going on, um, I mean, well, the um, freedom of press. It wasn't great uh, in the first place. It was hurt if even harder at that, that point. And well, I mean, in a sense that a lot of people getting uh, still problem if you say war in Crimea and conflict in Crimea, like Natalia tends to say. I mean, this is not a really safe thing. The people would be just happy to report something in line with uh, what everyone says. But I really don't buy your ready around the plan. We have two things. So, yeah, I was too here because I... He sees these smells of blood in the water. Just, and, uh, yeah. Sorry, I just said well, I have the well, paper no, I mean, about the preference specification and everyone uh -huh. says it's really around the flag and I'm like, no, it's a preference. So, <laughs> okay, I'd, lo I'd love to see your paper. But, but Bill, you have to keep this point. I mean, so, so it doesn't have to be prep. There's another explanation for a similar phenomenon, but it's actually one that I learned from you, and uh -huh. that's your, your story about agreeableness. Yeah. So, 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 it's in there, people. Right, so, so you have this argument with Sam uh, that, that part of the support for authoritarianism is not falsification, is that people, they, they just kind of go, they, maybe it's a low stakes thing, and they just want to go along with the flow just because they want to be good. They want to feel like they're part of the crowd. So it's a different mechanism uh, from falsification, but it's a similar mm -hmm. prediction that you would get from that as well. That some of these people, okay, you know, in 2013, there's still kind of a hangover from all of They see these you know, these big protests, and so then maybe they're like, yeah, you know, we don't like this whole... But then they start saying, well, wait a minute, the tide is turning, and it's not that they're falsifying their preference, it's just that their preference are benchmarked to what they perceive to be mm -hmm. the predominant sentiment. And so... But it's the same, different, but it's different from falsification. It's different from fear. Yeah. Of, and, and wouldn't that also explain the same pattern you get? So, so we've advanced this, this argument about, uh, about personality type and people who, 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 who value social harmony are much more likely to be supporters of, of, of the regime than people who, who, who enjoy conflict, right? Um, and so that's what, what Ted's talking about with the, with the agreeableness thing. Um, so the, and we've, we've advanced this as a different explanation for uh, attitudes in authoritarian regimes than preference falsification. Let me, so let me address them, them separately. If, if it's preference falsification, you have to explain why people are not falsifying their preferences before Crimea, but they are after, right? And then they continue to f falsify their preferences for years, and then they stop falsifying their preferences, or the, at least the incidence of fa preference falsification goes down pretty significantly uh, in uh, the beginning of, of, of this year, right? Last year, Putin's popularity drops 20 points. So it's, it, from the peak, it's dropped off about nearly 30 points. Right? Um, uh, and as the uh, his popularity falls, repression goes up, and there's more arrests, there's more clampdown on protests. Um, the regime is much, much more hardcore, right? Um, and I don't, I don't see that going on. We don't, you know, I can't, I can't present we use a handy list experiment that shows that it's not uh, preference falsification at all. Um, but there is other evidence to suggest that, that there's not much preference falsification going on. And it's hard, I think, to to, uh, to explain why people are afraid at time A and, and, and not afraid at time B and, and afraid again at time C and when there's, when there's not a kind of obvious connection between the degree of individual level 
uh, repression uh, in Russia at the, at the, at the time. Um, in terms of the agreeableness thing, what we find is that, that more agreeable people are more supportive of the regime before already, so they don't change much uh, as a result of Crimea. What we're really getting with this data is people who are changing. Uh, and um, we just uh, had a, a, a survey in the field a couple of months ago, and we, find, we still find that despite the fact that Putin's popularity has fallen, highly agreeable people are still more supportive of the regime than, 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 uh, than, than people who are low on agreeableness. Um, Rory Truex just, just uh, replicated it with three different samples in China uh, as well. So highly agreeable people, people who value social harmony uh, in China are much more supportive of the regime than anyone else. That's the big, biggest predictor there too. Um, so I think these are, these are different stories. Um, what's really, um, you know, the, the agreeable in the story is a story that's, 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 that's consistent, I think, across authoritarian re regimes over time. Um, and it's really a story about uh, reading social cues and getting social cues at work and getting social cues at school and getting social cues from the television uh, and from your neighbors that, you know, if you're, if you're a good person, nice people are, you know, are patriotic, nice people wear the, you know, the, 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 the St. George ribbons, nice people do this, nice people do that. They're kind of supportive of our collective efforts here um, and, they're, and they're, they're responsive to that. Um, what we're really seeing here is the change from, from other people getting on board who were skeptical before. And so that's what, to my mind, that's what's interesting about these, these educated urbanites, is that these are people that were skeptical and now they're not, now they're much less skeptical than they were. They're still skeptics, right? Um, we'd have to understand why, why they're, they're not afraid and the other people are, you know, maybe there's some idiots that don't really get the, get the memo. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, to me there's, there's I'd love to, 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 to see your paper on preference falsification because I, I don't see any evidence of that changing the incentives to change that, that's consistent with the data over these three different time periods. I'm actually afraid that maybe both are true. Uh -huh. I can discuss this with you later. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. I mean, the truth is we don't, we don't have a nice experiment that shows you that it's not, right? So I can't say, aha, here's my telling, here's my killer data point, but um, is that a question I had So this is really all low risk participation, like minimal <laughs> risk participation, like really dangerous stuff like watching TV. You know? um, uh, talking about politics with, with friends and family maybe slightly more, but I, I, this is all very low risk. We have some data on, on protest participation, previous protest participation that I actually haven't looked at uh, in this context. So that's a, that's a helpful suggestion. That's something we should look into to see if there are differences between people who have a, you know, a practice of, because we have data on people who participated in the protests in 2011 and 12. Um, so that, 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 that would be great. Yori. the experience. 
something that must be conveyed by something. And so, in addition, I get to the concerns about the TV watching being just a proxy for regime support. Um, I guess I, I think about the, when I think about what would be the, what would be the channel by which we have this emotional connection, I would think it's something experiential that's more likely to connect to an emotion versus some kind of passive mm -hmm. thing. So I guess I just, that's one question is like, uh, you know, it could have been talking with people, it could have been you have a Crimea party and then you, um, you know, sit around in front of Americans and, <laughs> as my Russian friends probably did, and then you, <laughs> you remember that and like, you know, it has, a, it has some effect or something. But you, anyways, but it's sort of doing something versus uh, just getting information. Yeah. I, I think that's, I guess, one question. And the other, which is, um, is think about Crimea per se, strikes me as, it's a very unusual, So that, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I, 
I wish I had the answer because so, so in the first round of the, of the survey, we asked how serious a problem is global warming. And what I wanted to be able to say is, look, and look, it solved global warming. But unfortunately, they screwed up and didn't answer that, didn't ask that question in the second round. So I was like deeply, deeply, deeply upset about that. But um, Crimea is unusual. I mean, there's, no, there's, there's no question about it. So they, 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 for ages in, in, in DC, the question everyone would ask was, OK, where's next? You know? Is it, is, it, is it Narva or is it, is it you know, northern Kazakhstan? And you're like, well, you know, it doesn't really push all the buttons that, that Crimea pushes, right? So Crimea is huge for Russian ethnic nationalists because it's Russian ethnics there. It's also big kind of the Russian state nationalists. It, it, it's, it, it's part of, you know, restoring uh, the, the, the Soviet Union. And, and, and it's also big for just, you know, kind of regular people and then memories of, of, of childhood vacations. And there's just nothing quite like Crimea. Um, that, uh, that 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 works that way. You know, one could think of in comparative cases. You know, this, the, the the war on, on the Kurds that, that Erdogan has just launched. Well, maybe that has a similar kind of resonance because this is you know these are terrorists that we've been fighting for you know forever. Um, that might be something that, that that looks kind of similar. I mean, Margaret Thatcher got Britain all riled up over some islands that were you know I don't, like eight thousand miles away. Who even knows that nobody had ever heard of that were populated mostly by penguins. Uh, and we sent people to die to liberate the penguins, you know. Um, so politicians are, are amazing at what they can get people. Right. So there, there's, I mean, you know, I wouldn't underestimate the, the, the evilness and, and genius of, of politicians in creating stories around this stuff. And certainly, you know, Crimea became more important after Putin discovered that orthodoxy was, you know, was, was, that's where orthodoxy came from and all of this stuff that, that they made up afterwards, right? Um, so I think, I mean, it, the Crimea is, is, is hard to, to replicate. Um, but I, I think, you know, a lot of countries have their, have their, you know, their own uh, sort of Crimeas uh, that, they, that, that they're not off the uh, agenda entirely. In terms of the experiential learning thing, I, that, that, that's really interesting. And I think that, you know, we don't have great data on, you know, what the experience actually is. So there's the, the TV watching experience is clearly highly emotional. In the paper version of this, we talked a lot about the, the increased quantity of TV that there was around this period, like the doubling of the length of, 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 of news shows the, and the, the really intense emotional tone uh, of news shows. Um, uh, there was a, a, a fun article in the, in the New York Times um, when, uh, what's his name, Absurdistan... Um, uh, Steingarten, he, he, he locked himself in the, in the plaza uh, with Russian TV in the minibar for a week um, just after Crimea and he wrote an article about it in the New York Times um, which is mostly about uh, variety shows and the music and how the music drove him to, 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 to drink very, very quickly but that the emotional tone of that was really marked and, and there's lots of other accounts uh, of that um, and so that's definitely you know it's not an informational story. You know, it would be great if we if we could have had a control group where we just, you know, found some people in Russia who hadn't heard about what happened, who hadn't read any media, and we just informed them. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that that's that that's that we weren't able to do that. But I suspect you're completely right about the emotional, the experiential content. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I back to the 90s. I think that's the one part that doesn't really fit your story. <coughs> the the uh, well. The, the, the 90s, you know, so, so part of Putin's legitimacy is that, you know, the 90s were terrible and, the, and yeah. because, you know, we got away from the true Russianness and so I, and, 
and people, when they talk about Putin, you know, Putin brought Russia off her knees. You know, since yeah. the 90s, you know, Yeltsin, you know, was prostrate before the West. And, then, and so how do you, you know, account for that? Because I would have had the opposite expectation that, you know, it would be, I mean, yeah. okay, it's personalized in a way, but. So we use that actual argument in the, you know, we, 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 we actually think that's an advantage. Mm -hmm. Right, and the advantage is that there's no way that thinking the Russian state, oh, wow, look, the Russian state can now you know, write historical wrongs. Right? Putin not only can't write the historical wrong of the 90s, he doesn't want to, because right? that's part of his legitimacy. And so this is nothing to do with Putin. It's nothing to do with the regime or any reality in the regime. It's just to do with feeling better about everything. Right? And so it's this incredibly widespread uh, emotional, the effect of emotions and, and on, on across this Ranged even the, the past, even the past of Putin's elephants, right? Um, so that's that's why I think it works. Um, I can see the you know the the point that it's not connected to Putin, but that's sort of why one of the reasons it's in there. Um, All right, well, we've already gone past our usual time, but is there any last question or comment? Uh, well, it's been a very rich discussion, and thanks for the presentation. Thank you so much. For the